0: I felt imprisoned, but I got to the point where I'm like, fuck, I have to make this a success, but I don't have control of this company.
1: Have you ever questioned what kind of leader you are or which roles truly suit you? It's not an easy task, especially when you're consumed by your startup's growth and ideas. However, the decisions you make can have a profound impact on your company's future.
0: I'm really happy to talk about it with no holes barred. I needed to be me. The dynamic with Henry and me is that he he wanted me to be someone that I'm not.
1: Luckily today, we have John Vincent, the co-founder of fast food chain Leon, who has learned many mistakes so we don't have to. This is Secret Leaders with me, Dan murray Serta. Leon, named after John's father, was founded in 2004. Six months after opening, it was named the best new restaurant in Great Britain by The Observer. John became CEO 10 years later in 2014 after his co-founder Henry Dimbleby stepped down. In 2017, Leon was named on the Sunday Times Fast Track 100 list, which ranks Britain's 100 private companies with the fastest growing sales over the last three years. In 2021, the company was sold for a reported £100 million to the billionaire Issa Brothers. But look behind this success, and you'll find a lot of lessons along the way. On the day I spoke to John, I was having a bit of a rough day as the CEO of my company Heights. The night before, I'd been at an event put together by this private investment bank, the guys in our sector. It was lovely to be invited, it was a very tight guest list, and we got loads of compliments. They even name-checked us as one of the brands they thought were the best in the whole world. Wow. I felt great afterwards, and then I woke up the next day, and I felt terrible. Instead of riding that high, I found myself actually in a spiral of doubt, questioning myself as a founder and my role in the business. This year, we're in a steady growth phase, working on becoming a profitable company. But that work is very different to the part I think I instinctively love and am good at, the beginning, the fast growth. Now, John, who wrote a book about challenging preconceived ideas of success, had great advice for me on this particular challenge.
0: It's a really good question about whether you should be you or whether you should try not to be you, right? And I think that I've tried to do a lot over the years. I remember there was one of my chairmen at some point said, oh, God, you seem really fascinated with, like yourself and like what you should be doing. And I'm like, yeah, because that's that. And you should be really happy that I'm trying to understand that because mm. if I'm a corner piece of a jigsaw, or, or I think I'm trying to be a corner piece of a jigsaw and I'm the bit with the mountain in the street, and then for God's sake, we're building the whole wrong thing. So, and I've been doing some work on, you know, the classic insights profile, which is the, the Jungian, the four red, blue, green, yellow kind of colors around. Are you, extroverted or introverted are you potentially kind of like thinking or feeling and and the, and the combination of that that gives you your own personality. And I've been doing a lot of work with a coach he kind of go okay look to what extent should I just be me and to what extent should I try and stretch. And I think mm. and and that that's a fundamental part of the book that we wrote called You not fighting which is chapter 1 know yourself, right? And I think there are so there are probably three models that I think are most relevant to knowing yourself. And I absolutely have come to the conclusion that you should totally just be that with a, with marginal stretch. So kind of like 90% focusing on what you are marginal stretch to get the next bit of adjacency, but not an attempt to be the opposite of you. I think, Mm. I think all union psychology shows that you cannot at the age that we are be the opposite of us. And we all wake up someday and go, right, I wake up some days. And I'm like, I'm not going to say anything in the meeting. I'm not going to draw attention to myself in the meeting. I'm just going to be the opposite of me, and I'm going to be really organised. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm going, to, I'm, going, to, I'm, going to, I'm just going to be the opposite of me. And then by about nine thirty, I'm like, oh fuck, that didn't work. I can't be the opposite of me. Oh, I, I, well, you're I, tired. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's nap, tiring being the opposite of you. And I, th- I always say to people at Leon, look, I'm not gonna. If you're afloat, I'm not going to spend all this time telling you that you're shit at Excel. And if you're a laptop, I'm not going to try and get you to be good at floating in the water by the time we have your next review because literally that won't work. And, and so many people in business have the same review time after time, which is, guess mm. what, laptop? You're still not floating in the water. Let's, let's really get a training program together for that. Mm-hmm. And it just doesn't work. So I guess my, and, and I can't advise you because you're already a really successful entrepreneur, right? So, but I guess we could help each other. As two people that have been on that journey, but I would say rule number one is the the combination for me of three tools: the Enneagram, the Insights Discovery Profile, which is Jungian, and whether you're a scalar disruptor or executor. For me, the three of the, those three models together, combined, giving you different cuts and different X-rays of your of your personality, are really important. The Enneagram is really fundamental to understanding what your biggest fear is. And my biggest fear is really being controlled or harmed by others. And therefore, I'm mm. Enneagram 8, which means that I can be Nelson Mandela or occasionally Saddam Hussein. So so that Enneagram 8 is someone that likes to make sure that the energy of the tribe and the energy of the company they have is, is as per their own energies. And they will defend mm. the tribe. And they will want everything to be pretty much as per their own energy. Uh, and that's uh, that, because that's has some real downsides as well as some upsides. So, and, and so everyone has their own different predominant fear. Enneagram one is fear of being perfect. Enneagram two is fear of not being loved. Enneagram three is not achieving. Enneagram four is not understanding your own identity. Enneagram five is not understanding the world around you. Enneagram six is almost fear of fear itself. Enneagram seven is fear of being bored. Enneagram eight is being controlled by others. Enneagram nine is fear of for conflict. Because they want to be a peacemaker. So we all have a ladder of fears, like an order of our fears.
1: Well-memorized. And,
0: memorized. and it's, 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 it's a ladder of those that's, that's important.
1: Casual. Yeah, I just listed off all nine <laughs> enigrams like, perfectly by memory. But, yeah. you know, that's just a casual example. Yeah. It's one of those things that, you know, need to continue doing the work. Like, were you a good manager?
0: As a good leader, terrible manager.
1: Yeah, so that's how I feel. I feel like I'm a good leader. I'm quite a good coach because I'm good yeah. at asking questions. And I'm really curious. I'm a bad manager.
0: Have you read or have you talked about a book called The Founder's Mentality? Is that something you've talked about on your... No. So there's a guy called Jimmy Allen who's at Bain. James Allen is what he's called on his books. And he he writes books with a guy called Chris Zook, who's American, and they're both Bain partners. They identify what they call the three predictable crises of growth. And the first is kind of, I think the first one is called Overload, which is when you start feeling like the business has got a little bit too big for your Mm -hmm. personality to really manage. Maybe not in your case, but you start to not know some of the names of the people there. And you start Mm -hmm. to feel that the organizational stretch needs processes that you didn't have at the start. And therefore it can't just be a mirror of you and a small one pizza team, but it actually starts to need processes that take you as the founder outside an initial comfort zone. That's overloading. I think the second one is stall out when the levers that you use to drive growth traditionally, you apply the lever and no growth comes. So it's like, hold Mm. it. I've always done this. I've always done this promotion. I've always done this, this, you know, Google ad thing. Why the hell is that lever not producing the same results that used to? And the third is free fall. So that's people like Kodak Enron, people that find themselves in free fall and have to really self-correct or fail to self-correct. And, one of the key things they identify, as well as you know, do you have a great mission and do you have an obsession with what he calls the front line, one of the key things they've identified is the three communities of, of, of disruptors, scalers, and executors. And what they say is, yeah, people always talk, often talk about, oh, is a visionary here, and now we've got the executors. What they've identified is that there's a community that sits in between which is rarely understood and rarely motivated or deployed, and that is the scalers. And a healthy company like yours, it's a win that's required, and therefore you're changing all the time and disrupting all the time, like water, to to identify something that works. Then you need your scaler right there with you throughout that process and ready to scale it. You shouldn't be doing any scaling and you shouldn't be doing any execution. So when you're feeling drained and asking yourself those questions, don't try and be a scaler. Don't try and be a laptop that doesn't float in water. Be the laptop that's good at Excel and ha- make sure you've identified the scalers. And there's a group called Chemistry Group, but I have no vested interest apart from helping your listeners. There's a, there's a group called Chemistry Group that have got a methodology for determining your disruptor level, your scaler level, and your executor level. And every functioning community needs, needs all three.
1: It's really interesting just listening to you because I guess I'm curious, like, did you figure this all out post Leon, where you had more time before Leon, where you're like working out how to be really strategic or during the journey where you were basically having to discover
0: yourself? Great question. I think I knew it. I always knew it instinctively. So I was always, I, I had this burning sense of I want to do things in a way that's different from how most businesses work, but it turns out that the way most businesses work is not very good. So the way that I wanted instinctively to be at p g the disruptor, the way I wanted to be at Bain, the disruptor, I was always being asked to do pivot tables on Excel. And I remember my boss at Bain, Nick Greenspan, he said, John, you need, to do, you need to be better at Excel. And I would say, yeah, maybe. I remember saying to him, or maybe it's time to just recognize that I'm very happy being who I am. And he went, mm, yeah, actually, maybe. And I think we constantly, it's good to try and get a bit of a grounding in scaling and execution. But if you are a disruptor, early on in your career, you've just got to fly.
1: T- totally. But then... You know, on that note, most startup founders are disruptors. You know, this is very common. Are you a founder or are you a CEO? And not often is the founder the CEO at an exit or even IPO or, you know, any of those like big moments.
0: It's it's not as common. So the question isn't, does this mostly happen? It's how can the founder find their exactly rightful role? And it could be that the CEO has a disruptor mindset. Because people think CEO has to have scaling or execution mindset. Somebody has to have scaling mindset, and that scaler is essential. But it doesn't mean to say that the CEO cannot be the, the C, uh, this disruptive CEO, cannot be the founder. It really doesn't. All that they need to have is someone alongside them who's a scaler and a team that is executing. Obviously, there are examples, and often people will, will quote Steve Jobs. And, and Steve Jobs both proves your argument and proves my argument why he proves your argument because he was rejected by apple in the first place and just like steve wozniak he got to the point where he was like apple is no longer for me and someone took over and said we are from now on a manufacturing company we are going to be the best manufacturer of pcs the most efficient factories and that because we've done all the innovation now now the grown ups will take it over this was pre iphone pre ipad pre loads of shit right pre the ipod even we are just gonna manufacture the old big fat Apple computers with the colored Apple. We're gonna manufacture them really well because innovation is done, right? Completely wrong strategy. But he proves my argument too, because it was Steve Jobs that went back and found a way of working that meant that he did the iPhone and the iPad and the whatever, right? And so he, that's an example of proving your point that he was rejected and he rejected himself, but he was essential to its fundamental success. The differentiator on, every, on almost every business is the scalers are more important than the disruptors. So, so, so I'm not, of course, Steve Jobs is essential to what he, did at, what, we, what he did at Apple, right? But the work that Jimmy Allen did identifies the execution and scaling. There are lots of people with good ideas. You and I have got an idea of a pill to cure all diseases, right? Scaling that, Pill that cures all diseases is something useful. But I would say the single biggest differentiator of really successful founders is either being a scaler as, or understanding the value of scaling. And one more thing I think excessive disruption can be bad for a business. And I probably disrupted a bit too much. There's part of a reason for that, which is when we started Leon, we got a decent brand with decent food and okay location. But our system and our machine that we built in the fast food was not as simple as it needed to be to really scale fast food. So I spent the next 17 years salami slicing that back to something simple. Whereas if we would have started with something simple like Southwest Airlines did, I could have just created an operational discipline around keeping that simplicity. But with Leon every year, simplicity was a project. So it was like simple, 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 simple. So I would say the macro issue we had with Leon that haunted us forever was our desire. was our lack of simplicity operation in the first place and our desire to constantly complicate. So I'd be like, let's do John Lewis. Let's do a book like you've got behind you. Let's, let's, let's launch in Sainsbury's whatever. So my, my desire to disrupt, I didn't put enough, I was a river without a riverbank sometimes. So I didn't put enough Mm. discipline on my own disruption.
1: Yeah, and I relate massively to this. By the way, this is something that I is definitely a natural weakness of me. When you said yeah. I start projects and don't necessarily finish them, I have a similar yeah. thing. Cause I just start lots of projects and I need people yeah. around me to hold me accountable to driving to completion as well. It's
0: it's hard. And a friend of mine said I had a coach who said you lack integrity. I said what? I don't lack integrity. So me lacking integrity is like the worst fucking thing, right? And he said like, no, you do because you don't finish something. You say you're gonna do. I'm like oh god that. That kind of is lacking integrity. So
1: what was it about the opportunity with Leon that met your personality needs and customer needs that wasn't currently met? And i also really interested to find out about your co-founder. What was your co-founder relationship like? How did you identify your strengths and weaknesses? Because all this Enneagram chat that you're super into, et cetera, Was that something you were aware of pre-Leon, all of it, therefore trying to identify the perfect partner or lucky?
0: Totally, we should have done more of it. Henry and I would have been more successful and Leon would have been bigger if we'd have done more of that work and conversation between us. So what really made me want to do Leon was Henry and I would meet and we'd say, look, we're in the second best business, Bain. It focuses on the individual. We're learning shadows. We're earning enough money, but it's not the best business. What would that be? The best job, the best business. And so we'd meet regularly to go, How? what are we going to do next? And one time we met and we wrote down five ideas each. And because of what I wanted in a business, one of my strong one of the five was good fast food. And he had the same on his list. And I think to answer your question specifically, what was it about it? First of all, I think the fun and energy of fast food has a scope and a dynamism that is consistent and a creative potential that is consistent with what I was looking for. There, were, there, there, are, there wasn't anyone really doing naturally fast food. The closest was a category called fast casual in America, which is for me is nothing like fast food. It was Chipotle and Panera bread. But the specific of actually reinventing fast food didn't exist anywhere in the world. I used to eat a lot of McDonald's and I could suddenly see in my mind this world where you walked into a fast food joint and it was very much similar feelings to fast food, except it was totally beautiful, totally amazing ingredients people smile because they want to smile in an amazing environment when you're close to the earth.
1: If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner, Vanta, comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. But until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes how did you get it off the ground? How did you raise money? Was it easy? Did your credibility, like for your pedigree with P&G and Bain and that stuff, did it factor in? Did anyone give a shit or was it just still super hard?
0: I'm really grateful to to the people that did invest. And at the same time, I'm not sure I chose the right approach or we chose the right approach. So we gave away too much equity in the first instance. And we and we were forever penalised for that through dilution, through loss of control, etc. I have a an investment in another business which is in a similar space, and they and the founder kept eighty percent of after his first round, he kept eighty percent because he went to some investors that were kind of like wealthy friends and family. They had a lot of money. They didn't necessarily this was didn't move the dial for them, and he got it. And I think you will still get a good return for them, even though they only took 20%. So we gave away 50% upfront. Wrong, wrong. It was very bad, bad, bad decision on our part, even though we're grateful for the money. And B, we gave it away on a 15% coupon, stupidly, so that in addition to the equity, their equity grew at 15% every year. So we completely screwed it up, right? The fact is we didn't know lots of wealthy individuals. We we knew sort of like people in the media who put in 20K or whatever, but we didn't know, we didn't have a really good network of venture capital firms. We didn't have an amazing, because most of our clients were big private equity companies. So I would say today, I would strongly recommend people to be really disciplined about that first investment, because if you give away too much at that point, you're forever struggling to give the next people in the chain a deal, or you're struggling to keep your own position, especially if there are two of you, because obviously I only had 25%. And, and also Henry said to me, John, you've, you, well, I've left Bain. You're going to leave Bain. Why don't I, Henry, take 60% of the equity? You take 40% of our pot, of our shared pot. And for some reason I said, yeah, okay. And I think it's because I also had this other business, this whiskey business turnaround at the start. But what I should have said was Henry... You you have to do this business because you you've already left. I'm now mm. leaving. I should get the sixty percent. Mm. So so I I was, I was way too soft with that first with that first piece.
1: How how did this play out, John? Like actually, this is very important, under talked about because a lot of guests don't want to talk about this stuff, and I love talking about this stuff. I think it's so important. How does this play out over the course of Leon's life? In terms of your founder relationship, in terms of your relationship with investors, and in return, sorry, and in relation to the financial outcome you had at the end and how you feel about it.
0: Okay, I'm really happy to talk about it with no holes barred. So people say, I have my own business. And sometimes they're mistaken because what they have is a job, right? So someone that is a plumber says, I have my own business, and I'm like, do you, or you just have a shit job because you don't have any security? Yeah, you're like you have a job without the benefits of a job, which is, you know you don't know. Yeah, because you because literally, if you left, you don't have a business, right? So I'm sorry, Jim the plumber. You don't. I love you. You're a great plumber, but you don't have a business. You have a job, right? The other mistake that people say when they have a business is they say, oh yeah, this is my business. But if you have less than fifty. Percent, it is not your business. You literally don't have a business. You have a shareholding in a business, but it's not your business. So as soon as you maybe even take on a pound, even of, of equity, you need to have the mindset of, mm, I am a major shareholder. I'm a controlling shareholder, and therefore I have control of a business. But it's not my business. If it goes below fifty percent, it is simply not your business. So when people referred to Leon as John and Henry's business, it was not our business from day one. It was the business of the people who had the majority of the shares. And But so, day
1: one, you had 50%, right? So yes. technically, oh, well, you had the coupon, I suppose. So, well, no, yeah. no, forget
0: the coupon because the coupon is a financial instrument, right, Dan? But at the, at the controlling equity level, we only had 50. So yeah. therefore, from day one, we didn't have 50.1%.
1: Interestingly, because you know, and I'm I'm always open, but with this stuff as well. So interestingly, Joel and I have 50.1 very specifically. Well
0: done, perfect.
1: And I'm always like, you know, I'm very, 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 very kind, thoughtful, and like, like just like just great board, like yeah. great, just really like good, kind investor, proper entrepreneur. So you know, yeah. not a VC. So yeah. just like so aligned. So it was very much their idea, like making sure that that just doesn't go below that.
0: Brilliant. Well, the, the wise investors do that because the wise investors are like, I don't want to make it my problem. Right, exactly. You're the one that has to think about it in the bath. 100%
1: by the way, yeah, like yeah. There, is a, there is a thing that I don't get, which is at some point, so, you know, and I've seen this with guests and I've seen it with my friends yeah. as well, where the VC, this is more of a VC thing, of course, but a VC is pressuring a founder to do X, Y, and Z. And yeah. at some point the founder would just be like, wait a minute, I've got like 8% of this business. Yeah. You've got 30, you fucking yeah. do it.
0: Yeah, 100%. It's like, I tell you what, no worries. If you think that's the right thing to do and it doesn't work, yeah, well, yes, that's probably not my fault. Accountability, yeah. an alignment of accountability and freedom and authority in a business is prerequisite. And if you're saying mm. to the CEO, the board telling you to do this, the board are deciding on this, the board should make very few decisions that are contrary to the CEO. Otherwise they've got the wrong CEO or the CEO's got the wrong board. So, and the yeah, and board is, can be very egotistical. They can be patronizing. They can have the, like to your point earlier about founders needing to lead. They have this, oh, the founder has a shelf life. They have this idea of the grown ups will take you from here. Now, if sometimes that can be a little bit true, but unless that founder has at least got some runway for a few years to take it somewhere useful, then the board should, t- and I had an amazing investor called Ferson Lambrano. And he said to me, John, you are in the driving seat. This is your aeroplane. We used to talk about that that flight of the the Australian Qantas flight where they had an engine problem. They had four pilots on board because it was long haul, two pilots, two pilots. Completely coincidentally, they had another two pilots that were monitoring the four pilots. And almost never happens. They had two additional pilots monitoring the pilots that were monitoring the four pilots. So that I believe, I'm right in saying, they had eight. Even if I'm wrong and they've got six, I'm pretty sure they had eight pilots. And one of the most junior pilots when the engine went, went, my aeroplane. And the others went, yes, your aeroplane, we will support you. So one person got onto the ground, to talked to the engine engineers. Another pilot, you know, looked at another manual, another person monitored the flight management system. But the junior person said, this is my plane. And everyone went, yes, your plane. And that's what needs to happen in business. It's like your plane. This is your company. And the person said to me, John, the only, only thing I ask is that you perhaps listen to some of the mistakes that I've made, because I've made quite a few. I'd like the opportunity to tell you about some of the mistakes I've made if they become relevant. That's all I'm asking you. And I was like, bloody great. Because then, then you really want to deliver for someone. But subconsciously, if someone tries to do your job every day, a little bit of you is like, well, you do my job then.
1: So how else did this play out? So round one, you're currently already below that point. Yeah. I guess there's a question here as well. Like, do you realize this at the time or is this your reflection?
0: I think probably I didn't realize it enough. I think we probably still felt that it was our business. Yeah. And we didn't see the potential ramifications of it further down the line. And, there was another question you asked earlier about my dynamic with Henry about whether perhaps if we'd have understood the personality profiling, we'd have had a, a better relationship. And the two things are linked. If I can refer you back to that question, which is I want, I needed to be me and Henry, the dynamic with Henry and me is that he, he wanted me to be something that I'm not. So I, so he was slightly more senior than me. By the time we left Bay, we were theoretically both senior managers. But he had been a manager for longer. And when I joined the company, he even interviewed me, and he, and he was sort of always a, a little bit, what, half or one rank, rank above me. And that, and yet, yeah, obviously, we went into Leon as, as, as equals. But there was always this sense of, you know, I think if I did it again, I would have probably said, Henry, I need to be CEO, to be honest with you. Yeah. Even though he's not amazing, great at that. But I don't think that it suited me to not be not allow not be able to exercise my energy on it within the business, and I, and often I we I would agree to tasks that were too executionally or folks focused, and therefore I think we should have just said Henry, this is what you are, this is what I am, we are just different. Why do we not accept that and be happy with that? Why, for various reasons possibly through fear and ego are we trying to prove that we're something that we're not and I think if it, if we'd have known that I'm a hammer and he's a you know a spanner earlier on I think the relationship would have been better and Leon would have been healthier and so I think we got better at that through the process but it was years into the process before we realized that so the implications for your listeners would be if you're in a relationship so it's right you're in a a business relationship, and you're the founder, the sole founder, understand those around you and understand yourself. If you're in a partnership with two or three people, three like innocents, really understand who you are and be really comfortable with the different dynamics that you're each going to bring. And don't be fearful of of that. Don't think, oh, I wish I was more like him. I wish I was more like her. If you're not, just be really happy with who you are. And I think we need to do it to understand that. But your question about the dynamics on the structural nature of how it played out was that I felt imprisoned. So I felt that all of my eggs emotionally—I named it after my dad, the the Leon. Emotionally, my eggs were in the Leon basket. Financially, they were in the basket that basket, and I had this constant weird dynamic, which was, I am totally responsible to my investors. I want to deliver for them, and yet they're my own um, prison masters. They're my prison guards. So what? Was, I don't know whether it's Stockholm syndrome or whatever, but I got to the point where I'm like, fuck, I have to make this a success, but I don't have control of this company, and therefore I'm kind of an employee in a business that I started that I have to make work for 20 different reasons, and it was very painful to me. And I I used to get very stressed by it.
1: I guess, you know, in a business like yours, okay, you gave away 50%. I understand and that's more than most do choose to give away. And if you're lucky and you listen to podcasts like this and you listen to other founders and you do your reading and all that stuff, you can avoid those mistakes. However, whatever happens, if you were starting, Leon... And taking it to any kind of scale that you did, it's sort of unavoidable that you'd have ended up below 50% at some point anyway, surely. What I'm saying is, my understanding of your particular industry's OPEX model, cash flow requirements, setting up a new store every time, it's not software. It is a capital intensive business and it just requires cash. So I guess the question is, is it not a self fulfilling prophecy for you anyway?
0: Let me just deal with the issue where we're suddenly in that we're in that situation, and we're there, right? We we failed to to maintain majority in that in that situation. I think it's really important that you first of all you can obviously, as you know, Dan, your shareholding does not have to dictate your legal control. So Rupert Murdoch esque, one option is to say, right, I might be twenty percent, but I've still got a golden share, or I've still got. Um, a shareholders' agreement that gives me control, even though I've got 20%. So that's obviously one way of trying to avoid that. But um, at the point that, you, that it's happened and you haven't done that, then I think the key is to have the absolute best investment partner. And I would say, my example of I had active private equity who were good in many respects, I had an amazing guy called First and Lambrano who became a fundamental individual partner to me though he was an institution he put enough individual humanity into that so I think choosing the choosing an individual as a partner not an institution is really important because even in these institutions there's a personality who can create enough human human connection with you where you feel like you have an individual as a partner, not a not a VC firm institutionally as a part with lots of partners making decisions and never getting back to you. So I think if you do get diluted, have a, a partner who you love and who you are really loyal to and who knows is loyal to you. It doesn't mean to say you say to them, please never fire me. Because I used to say to the person, fire me if I'm shit. You must fire me. Don't think that I'm being nice to you because I'm trying to get you not to fire me. I'm doing it because I actually genuinely like you. If it gets to the point you have to fire me, fire me. And he said to me, fine, I will do if it happens. But do me do me the same favor. If I become shit as an investor, you fire me. I'm like, fine, done, deal. right? So, so that was a great relationship. So if you get to that point, make sure you've chosen wisely your investors that you don't mind them being the majority and you being, being the second. The, the next thing is, I would say, understand whether it suits your personality. Because some people are completely comfortable with it. So if you're completely comfortable with it, don't just because I wasn't comfortable with it, doesn't mean to say that other people shouldn't just be more philosophical and, and go along with it and be, and be comfortable with it. And I, I know, but if you, the trouble is there are too many stories of people like Kath Kidston or whoever. There are too many stories of individuals who've found themselves effectively not being their business. And there are more stories of upset and structural failure in those businesses where the founder gets so controlled by a patronizing private equity firm that I would still re- suggest that people don't get themselves in that situation. And in our industry, we should have maybe had a lower overhead to begin with, had three profitable stores, and then after those three profitable stores, we should have either franchised earlier, or we should have managed it through debt earlier, without. To, but because by, by having by having three stores that really were profitable and had enough cash flows with a lower overhead... That's what we should have done, even within the restaurant industry. A capex intensive model, as you say, Dan, I think we should have done that.
1: Financially, then, how did this all play out? Like, what are you willing to share? What can you share? Did you have a figure in your head when you first started as well? And does it matter? And you seem like an honest guy. So I I think these are crucial questions people pussyfoot around in the UK. So I like to ask when people are willing to talk about it.
0: I'm happy to create numbers that people can triangulate easily with, but maybe I won't say the number, but people sure. people at the Mass GCSE can maybe work it out. So the first thing to say is that I could have easily ended up with no money and I could have easily ended up being a person that went, oh, I tried hard. Whoops, I've still got a mortgage. I've still got a big mortgage and I'm a bit fucked. And so that is the that is the reality of being an entrepreneur. And I'm not saying that I am... You spoke, I know we, we always talk about luck and you sort of, you know, mentioned it earlier as a cliche, but I would say that before I tell you the numbers, it's a long caveat. I will tell you, but I'm embarrassed. Um, I could have easily ended up with nothing, right? That's the first thing to say. And I'm no, better in, in, I'm no better than the people that have still got nothing. But having said that, 2014, the business was valued at between six and 10 million. I became the sole CEO in 2014. And over those years to 2021, I took it to being worth 100 million. We wanted to sell it for uh, 250, 500 million, and we, so we failed. So you're speaking to a failure. I don't know whether you've got a special podcast of failures, but that's me. I'll be on that one.
1: Funny to say that, John. You know, our second podcast in the week is all about failures, and I'm afraid selling a company for 100 million doesn't count.
0: Well, thank you. That's very kind. But the the at that point, I had 10% of, this is public knowledge as but I think if you read certain articles, you could probably piece it together. But anyway, but you are getting a scoop here, Dan, don't worry. So I'm going to give you some more detail. So 10%, I had 10% in ordinary shares, and I had another 5% as the CEO over a certain hurdle.
1: Yeah, growth so, shares over the value that you created. Over
0: the previous round, yeah. So I, and then I had to pay tax, like entrepreneur's relief went down from 10 to 5 Five, I think so I didn't have as much entrepreneur's relief some of it was in the options was capital gains tax not income tax but I paid a shed load of tax and therefore at the end of the day I probably got enough to enough money to not work for a short for a while but not so much that I don't think oh my god I should be working not doing that fucking secret leaders podcast <laughs> no, yeah, I'm exactly. joking. I'm joking. <laughs> so yes, yeah, so that's probably where I am. It's it's a sort of money that probably before I would have been like, oh my god, I don't need anything else. And then as soon as you make some, you're like, oh god, I've got. Look at that. Look at look at inflation. Look at how the money's being eaten away. I've got no income. So I think income is not. I don't have any income. So income is not to be sniffed at. you know what I mean, as as something which is very valuable. But of course, I'm luck. I'm very happy and fortunate to have the money that I have. And I'm very content with it. It's a fraction of probably what in my mind, theoretically, I thought I should make, especially looking at the benchmarks of my friends at Innocent who sold their business for 450 million or 400 million or whatever it was to Coke and then had you know, a good share of that age. My, you know, I am definitely the poor cousin to my mates, some of my best mates. But I also recognize the fact that my I hate being... My, my, my wife, Katie, she's a broadcaster, she really does not like the idea of having a, a different amount of money from some of our mates. And on the whole, you know, we, we genuinely drive a shitty car and we try not to differentiate our lives from anybody. A bit embarrassing when you have a little bit more money than some of your friends, even though fortunately I've got a lot less money than some of my other friends. I like the innocent guys.
1: So, you know, interviewed like 250 people, they say money can't buy happiness. I think what I would say to that, the correlation is that's not really true or fair. It sounds nice to say money doesn't buy happiness because most people don't have money. And so you want to appeal with your message to as many people as possible. And there's a lot of truth in that. The poorest people in the world can be the happiest, and most fulfilled. But the thing that money offers guests on this podcast that they talk about that is life-changing, is freedom to choose how to spend their time and not be led by the job they need to take because of market conditions or the decision that they're forced to take because it's kind of out of their hands and they've got dependence. The freedom to choose how to live their life, how to live their purpose and what to do, that is absolutely a consequence of the money that they've made. Mm. And the happier entrepreneurs that I've met definitely are the ones who have Mm. made the money And are not stressed right now about having to choose what to do. And there's also, you know, understandably less bitterness. Like it's hard if you've gone on a really big, long journey over a decade or two and come away with almost nothing. I think it takes a special character not to have a sort of bitterness. Yeah. You know, and I know that entrepreneurs pay themselves nothing at the start, can't get mortgages, take on all the risk. Loans are bad. Like every single societal construct that's there for other people are not there for you as an entrepreneur. So to go through that for so long and actually also sometimes have a big outcome for the company and nothing for yourself. Yeah. It's hard not to be bitter.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think the ability to allocate your time is the ultimate wealth. And it's certainly a lot easier if you've got money.
1: It's interesting though, right? Because we actually, we, we were talking earlier about, you know, speaking of harmony and activities. Just speaking earlier about how I've been so focused building heights inwardly and spending most of my time focused on customers yeah. and what a customer's want and how do I motivate my team and how do I do the inward facing things just so deeply that going to an event and meeting both competitors, but also just other people in my space and in my industry who are very complimentary and saying very nice things. I came back from it last night feeling wow, that was actually amazing, my ego's inflated and everyone thinks we're great, to waking up today feeling sort of full of anxiety and having conversations about enterprise value and valuations and exit potential and all those things. It's interesting because it doesn't feel like that's why I started it.
0: One of the things that led me to write Winnie Not Fighting was a coach that I had called Amy she gave me a book to read called "The Great Work of Your Life," which was an Western version of the Bhagavad Gita. So the the concept of the difference between desire and aspiration was quite interesting to me. So if you look at most Buddhist and Buddhist Taoist, less so Confucianist thinking, it really identifies this idea of, of course, when we are subsumed by a desire, which is fundamentally a fear of something. So it's a fear of maybe not being uh, seen as successful, a fear of being bored, a fear of being controlled by others, whatever it is. That desire that we have is the inverse of fears that we've learned in our lifetime. So if you identify the fear that is making you Trigger your ego to say what if you identify that fear that says, What's giving me anxiety about the carrot from the from these investment banks or from PNG or whatever that say you could get this? If you could really identify what the fear is behind that desire, but also then recognize the fact that the Bhagavad Gita defines success as being yourself in the present moment and giving up the fruits giving up the fruits and not attaching yourself to those fruits because those fruits they not new, then I found that really useful, Leon, where I was like, okay, literally my present moment happiness is literally not driven by any attachment to future fruits. The ability to say those fruits are there, I may get them. If they come, I will enjoy them because it's it's prerequisite upon me to enjoy them, but I will not attach my identity to those future fruits and i will not attach my happiness to those future fruits and i will not allow myself to be controlled by fears that are associated with those future fruits i found that very liberating at leon and whilst we whilst i was running leon I, it made me a better leader of leon in my in my experience so i think maybe for you understanding do the enneagram and understand what fears are your predominant fears where did they come from and are they healthy? A lot of people have a fear of not being loved. And whilst it's nice to be loved, really doesn't help to control yourself or to associate yourself worth with being loved, etc. etc. In with me as an Enneagram 8, my desire is not to be controlled by others or harmed by others. But really that leads me to create a sometimes a one man is an island thing. And I don't really recognize my dependency and codependency and interdependency with lots of other people because i think fuck it i just go and do it myself then so that is was really healthy for me so i think for you maybe understanding the root cause of the fear that leads to the desire giving up the fruits might be a useful process to go through
1: yeah i mean you've got me inspired i'm gonna i'm gonna give it a go
0: this week do you have any regrets on the journey do you know beth Alton? She, she sang a song, and I was, there was a really sweet line in it, which was, regrets are just things we haven't done yet. And I remember listening to this song in the early 2000s. I was thinking, I kind of like that idea, regrets are just things that we haven't done yet. That feeling that you carry with you, isn't in a Ted Lasso kind of way, isn't super helpful. And the Ted Lasso advice to be like a goldfish is, is useful. However, are there things that, you know... I'm going to end really quickly with the story of Choi, right? It's relevant, really relevant to regrets, right? which is Troy had a horse. He was a poor man. The horse ran away. The neighbor said, Oh, Troy, you're so unlucky. And Choi said, maybe. The next day the horse came back with two wild horses and the neighbor said, Oh, Troy, you're so lucky. And Choi said, Oh, m- maybe. The next day his son, Troy's son broke his leg, trying to tame one of the horses. And fundamentally, you know, the, the response to the neighbor saying, Oh, your God, you're so unlucky was maybe. The day after that, the army tried to take his son away and they couldn't because the son had broken his leg. And the neighbours said, oh, Choi, you're so lucky. And Choi said, maybe. So I think that we cast, and this is relevant to failures and mistakes as well as regrets. Perhaps things that people cast as regrets were essential steps to get them to where they are now. And so I would say not only is it not healthy, to have too many regrets. It's also maybe wrong philosophically, spiritually, and practically to have those regrets because they fundamentally, without that regretted episode, you may not have what you have now.
1: If you enjoyed this episode and found it useful, write us a review and subscribe or follow wherever you listen to your podcast. It makes a real difference to us. I've been your host, Dan murray Serta, and we'll be back next week with more lessons for entrepreneurs and leaders at all stages. The episode was produced by Ruth Edwards and Sol Harris and all brought together by our head of podcast, Will Stollerman. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will
0: hear stories, strategies, tips, and tricks.
1: Told by leading names in sport and beyond
0: who know what it takes to get to the very top.
1: There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. See you next week.